Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 140 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news that the EU-UK data adequacy decision has taken a significant step forward. We then look at a report that GDPR is hindering the sharing of medical data, particularly Top ID19 research data, between researchers within the EU and UK and those in the rest of the world. We then travel to the Republic of Ireland, where the DPC has issued a statement regarding Facebook data breaches. And we then come back to the UK and take a wider look at the potential for data breaches caused by estate agents recording virtual viewings of properties for sale. We then have a story which involves the Netherlands and the UK, where Uber dismissal algorithms have been challenged in court, both in Amsterdam and in London. And we then take a wider look where Android and iOS have both issued guidance on user data selection within apps and particularly within games on their mobile platforms. We then return to the Netherlands where a court case has looked at when does legal obligation trump other users' rights under GDPR. We then travel to Belgium, where news that the EU Commission is taking a further look at the rules on artificial intelligence. And then to America, where gay dating app Manhunt has suffered a data breach. And finally this week, we travel to New Zealand, where cleaning contractor Spotless has suffered a data breach. So as always, a useful mix of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information within them useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please email feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every piece of email we receive and wherever possible we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. But unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Stay home, stay safe. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you've heard us talk before about the EU data adequacy decision which we're awaiting for the UK since the UK left the EU and the EU transition period came to the end at the end of December 2020. And we're now in this further transition period for data adequacy, which the first part of which runs out on the 30th of April, but it's widely expected that will be automatically renewed until the 30th of June. However, we're still looking at the longer-term picture of the EU deciding that the UK is an adequate country as far as GDPR is concerned. Now, way back in February, the European Commission took most observers by surprise by releasing an early draft adequacy decision, and that was to be widely welcomed. However, since then, things have slowed down a bit, and indeed, if you listened to our show last week, you have heard us say that we were concerned that possibly the EU were dragging their heels. Well... This week, the EDPB, the European Data Protection Board, announced its views on the decision. And whilst its view was broadly in favour of the UK being granted an adequacy decision, it has flagged a number of areas that should be assessed in greater detail by the European Commission before reaching an adequacy decision. And these include the UK Data Protection Act's immigration exception, which essentially relieves controllers involved with immigration-related activities of certain obligations under GDPR to the extent complying with those obligations would prejudice the maintenance of effective immigration control and or the investigation or detection of activities that would undermine the maintenance of effective immigration control. And the EDPB also had concerns about the rules regarding onward transfers of personal data, 
i.e. personal data transferred from the EEA to the UK under an adequacy decision, but then transferred onward from the UK to a third country, which the EEA itself may or may not regard as being adequate. And in addition to this, the EDPB approved the UK's creation of the Investigatory Powers Tribunal and the introduction of judicial commissioners. It flagged the long-standing concerns about interception of communications under the UK Investigatory Powers Act 2016 as another area requiring further consideration. So now that the EDPB has issued its opinion, the European Commission will now seek approval from representatives of each of the 27 EU member states. Once that process is completed, the European Commission will adopt a formal decision regarding the adequacy decision. If adopted, the adequacy decision will last for a period of four years and then the whole review process begins again. So whilst this is a positive step forward, we are still a long way from the UK being declared as an adequate country as far as GDPR is concerned. And so we would urge everyone to still keep in mind that we may have to take measures should we be declared non-adequate and i.e. in which case we become a third country and that would mean standard contractual clauses and everything that goes with that. So we will of course be keeping a close eye on this now as it progresses through the 27 countries of the EU and we'll be bringing you regular updates right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday 4pm UK time. To COVID now, and health experts are urging EU policymakers and legislators to review the EU's legal data protection framework, GDPR, which they say is hampering the sharing of pseudomized health data outside of the EU and the EEA. According to a new report released on 8th of April, the sharing of health data with researchers outside the EU and the EEA is sorely needed to enhance international research collaboration in the public sector, thereby maximising health benefits for European citizens. However, it is currently hindered by a restrictive legal framework. The report calls for adapting or expanding the existing legal framework to overcome challenges imposed by GDPR. George Griffin, co-author of the report, said EU EEA citizens strongly benefit from international sharing of health data by allowing researchers to make the best use of limited resources and to ensure that research conducted elsewhere is also relevant for patients in Europe. Sharing of data beyond the EU, he added, should be encouraged to maximise individual and society benefits to be obtained from the contribution of research participants. German MEP Axel Voss said that while any alterations must take care not to endanger citizens' privacy, there's an urgent need to carefully clarify and adapt certain provisions in GDPR to increase access to urgently needed data sets. An EU official said that GDPR offers different tools that can be used by EU research bodies to exchange personal data with partners in third countries, including for scientific research. The official added that the relevant rules have further been explained by the European Data Protection Board in multiple guidance documents, citing an example from the last year when the board specifically addressed international cooperation and guidance on research in the context of COVID-19. These guidelines recognise that in the context of the current pandemic, the public interest derogation may be available for international data exchange for research purposes. He went on to say, as outlined in the European Commission's pharmaceutical strategy, the Commission aims to create a trustworthy patient-centred European health data space designed to serve as a cornerstone of health digitalisation. This is envisaged to ensure access to health data through an interlinked system that gives access to comparable and interoperable health data from across the EU. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. 
if you're a regular listener to the GGBL Weekly Show, you will know that we've frequently mentioned data breaches at Facebook. And on Wednesday this week, the Irish Data Protection Commission released a statement about its investigation into Facebook's data breach. It said, The Data Protection Commission today launched the own violation inquiry pursuant to Section 110 of the Data Protection Act 2018 in relation to multiple international media reports which highlighted that a related data set of Facebook user personal data had been made available on the internet. This data set was reported to contain personal data relating to approximately 533 million Facebook users worldwide. The DPC engaged with Facebook Ireland in relation to this reported issue, raising queries in relation to GDPR compliance to which Facebook Ireland furnished a number of responses. The DPC, having considered the information provided by Facebook Ireland, regarding this matter today is of the opinion that one or more provisions of the GDPR and or the Data Protection Act 2018 may have been and or are being infringed in relation to Facebook users' personal data. Accordingly, the Commission considers it appropriate to determine whether Facebook Ireland has complied with its obligations as data controller in connection with the processing personal data of its users by means of the Facebook Search, Facebook Messenger Contact Importer and Instagram Contact Importer features of its service or whether any provisions of GDPR and or the Data Protection Act 2018 have been or are being infringed by Facebook in this respect. In reply, Facebook issued a brief statement which said we are cooperating fully with the IDPC in its inquiry which relates to features that make it easier for people to find and connect with friends on our services. These features are common to many apps and we look forward to explaining them and the protections we have put in place. Last week, Italy's Data Protection Commission also called on Facebook to immediately offer a service for Italian users to check whether they had been affected by the breach. But Facebook had made no public acknowledgement or response to that call. It's likely that they will ignore the call from the Italian regulator by relying on GDPR's main function, which is that each company that operates across multiple EU countries can select which country is their main country. And in Facebook's case, that is very clearly the Republic of Ireland. And late this week, there was news of another potential data breach at Facebook. Motherboard reported on Friday that an alarming leak of Facebook data had been found made accessible via a bot on the Telegram messaging platform that gives out the names and phone numbers of users who've liked a Facebook page. Facebook have yet to comment on that latest report. We will, of course, keep you updated on future moves in the Facebook data breach case as and when we receive them here at the GDPR Weekly Show. One result of the COVID crisis has been the mass increase in the number of estate agents making available virtual viewings of properties. However, little consideration seems to have been given for the possibility of these virtual viewings creating a data breach. An example occurred this week of where a householder had requested an estate agent to film a virtual view of their property. The estate agent did this, but when the view appeared on the estate agent's website, the householder realised to their horror that the camera views taken by the estate agent had allowed views of bills and other information that had been left laying on the table and also that it showed that there was various medical apparatus in the house which was essential for the householder but the householder didn't really want the rest of the world knowing that they required that equipment. Now GDPR, if someone in your own house, so if you invite friends around for a party and one of them takes a photograph and, and then puts that photograph on Facebook and in that photograph 
in the background can be seen something which would be regarded as personally identifiable information, then GDPR has a provision that that's not considered to be a data breach because it's it's person to person, it's not business to person. It's not considered in that case that either person is particularly the data controller. However, in the case of an estate agent taking a virtual view of your property, that's not the case, it's a commercial transaction. And the estate agent, by definition, becomes the data controller for the data. And therefore, if the estate agent puts that information up on their website, they are potentially committing a data breach, and a data breach for which it is likely the householder could pursue damages, albeit that those damages would probably be limited by the fact that the householder A invited the estate agent into their home, and B presumably left the documents out on the table to be photographed. Not that they knew they were going to be photographed, but what I mean is they left the documents there on the table, they didn't lock them away out of sight. And so what are the two lessons to be learned from this? Well, first one is if you're a householder and you're having your house subject to a virtual viewing by an estate agent, make sure anything you don't want people to see is locked away out of sight. But the second obligation lays on the estate agent. And we would say that estate agents must take care to establish that any personally identifiable information within the views that they take and make available on their website has been obscured, has been fuzzied out so that people can't read it. And perhaps it would also make sense that any estate agent allows the householder to view the video before the video is put up on their website. And I would suggest if I were an estate agent to protect myself, I would also get a signed undertaking from the householder that they had viewed the video. They were happy with the contents and they were happy with any personally identifiable information disclosed in the video being disclosed. Otherwise, I can see a suite of lawsuits coming down the line of householders who may be frustrated because their property is not sold, who then seek to get compensation from their estate agent for personally identifiable information which has been revealed in the virtual viewing. So if you've either got your house up for sale or you are an estate agent, hopefully some food for thought there. And if you're an estate agent and you'd like any help on what should and shouldn't be obscured, then please do get in touch with us using the contact details which are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. To the Netherlands now and activists challenging Uber over what they allege were robo-firings of drivers in Europe have trumpeted winning a default judgment in the Netherlands where the Court of Amsterdam ordered the ride-hailing giant to reinstate its drivers who the litigants claim were unfairly terminated by algorithmic means. The court also ordered Uber to pay the fired driver's compensation. The challenge referenced Article 22 of the GDPR, which provides protection for individuals against purely automated decisions with a legal or significant impact. The activists say this is the first time a court has ordered the overturn of an automated decision to dismiss workers from employment. However, the judgment, which was issued on February 24th, was issued by default, and Uber said it was not aware of the case until last week, claiming that's why it didn't contest it, nor indeed as it complied with the order. Uber argues that the default judgment was not correctly served and says it's now making an application to set the ruling aside and have its case heard on the basis that the correct procedure was not followed. It envisages the hearing taking place within four weeks of its Dutch entity, Uber BV, being made aware of the judgment which it says occurred on April the 8th. Uber only became aware of this default judgment last week due to representatives for the ACDU not following proper legal procedure, an Uber spokesperson said. 
Uber pointed to a separate judgment by the Amsterdam Tort last month which rejected another challenge to Uber's anti-fraud systems with the tort acceptance its explanation that algorithmic tools were mere aids to human anti-fraud teams who said it takes all decisions on terminations. With no knowledge of the case, the tort handed down a default judgment in our absence which was automatic and not considered. Only weeks later, the very same tort found comprehensively in Uber's favour on similar issues in a separate case. We will now contest this judgment, the Uber spokesperson said. In reply, the activist also pointed to a separate development this week in the UK where it said the City of London Magistrates Court ordered the City's Transport Regulator Transport for London to reinstate the licence of one of the drivers revoked after Uber routinely notified it of a dismissal, which they say was also triggered by a formula within Uber's system. Commenting on that, a Transport for London spokesperson said, The safety of the travelling public is our top priority and where we're notified of cases of driver's identity fraud, we take immediate licensing actions so that passenger safety is not compromised. We will always require the evidence behind an operator's decision to dismiss a driver and review it along with any other relevant information as part of a decision to revoke a licence. All drivers have the right to appeal a decision to remove a licence through the magistrate's court. Yazin Aslam, president of the ADCU, added, I am deeply concerned about the complicit role Transport for London has played in this catastrophe. They have encouraged Uber to introduce surveillance technology as a price for keeping their operator's licence and the result has been devastating for a Transport for London licensed workforce that is 94% black and minority ethnic. The Mayor of London must step in and guarantee the rights and freedoms of Uber drivers licensed under his administration. We approached Uber for more details of how their algorithm works, but they declined to provide any further details. If we hear any more on this, either from Uber or from the activists concerned, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. A wider look at mobile apps now, and in particular mobile games, and this week both Apple and Android have released some information and guidance on what developers should include within their games to be both GDPR and CCPA compliant. For both platforms, the recommendations are to develop an account-based personalised tool when you're signing up players. Players should be able to drill down into data they've consented to be collected and why which should help developers improve the gaming experience as well as offering game rewards for sharing data or registering an account. Again, across both platforms, make sure you have the latest third-party SDKs installed in your game when reviewing the code that will collect user and device identifying data. And also make sure that you read the third-party SDK vendor's privacy policy and documentation to understand if the SDK offers end-user consent when used by EU citizens. And again, across both platforms, obtain end-user consent if you or your partners are collecting information such as email address, telephone number, physical address, device location, purchase information that can be linked to a player, advertising ID, network ID such as the International Mobile Equipment Identity, IMEI, or the International Mobile Subscriber Identity, IMSI, and analytics and trashlytics device login data that can also be linked to a user or device. And in a further check of SDK documentation... Some third-party SDKs can flag when a user is located in the EU and provide the option to disable data collection. Don't forget to check you are not using deprecated or out-of-date SDK code. For Android developers specifically, under the Google EU user consent policy, make sure that your players in the European Union are aware of what personal and ident- device identifying data you collect and why you're collecting it. And for iOS only, using probabilistic matching data which cross-references iOS device IP addresses against information you hold on your own users to identify and track them will not work. In the last two weeks, Apple have started sending out letters to companies who were using this feature, telling them to remove any code that supports this functionality. 
what Apple are saying you should do is add a consent notice option that when you open the game, because the user's device has disabled advertiser tracking, will provide clear and transparent information about the data types you collect and why. This will also help educate users that add SDKs in particular add to the gaming experience. Apple stress that they believe privacy is a fundamental human right. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday, 4 p.m. UK time. To the Netherlands now, and an interesting ruling from the Arnhem Leverden Court of Appeal in the Netherlands, which has recently issued a decision concerning compliance with a legal obligation as legal basis for data processing, Article 6, Paragraph 1c of GDPR. To give a bit of background to this case, a Dutch bank, Rabobank, provided consumer credit to the petitioner. Two years later, the petitioner had worked as a director of a company was fired from his job. At the time of dismissal, his outstanding debt to Rabobank was worth around €71,000, which he was unable to repay. The petitioner eventually entered into debt settlement scheme with Rabobank and some other creditors. Rabobank, registered in the Dutch Central Credit Information System, CKI, personal data of the petitioner relating to his financial position. The bank included information such as the amount of the debt, payment arrears and the debt settlement into the registration. The Dutch Credit Registration Office, which maintains CKI, has set five years to be the period during which personal data about defaulting creditors are to be kept in CKI. After that, the data is erased. The petitioner challenged the registration and retention of personal data. He claimed that the legal basis for posting the data could only be legitimate interest, Article 61F of GDPR, not legal obligation, Article 61C, as Rabobank claimed. The petitioner requested from Rabobank to remove the registration, i.e. erase the personal data from the CKI, because the balance of interests and rights did not work in the bank's favour. Rabobank refused to imply the request and the petitioner brought a court action which eventually reached the Court of Appeal. In dealing with the question of legal basis for the processing, the Court of Appeal referred to a judgment of the Court of Appeal Herta John Bosch, the Den Bosch Court, from the 6th of August 2020, what's been known as the Den Bosch Judgment. The Den Bosch Court established, following a detailed analysis, that the registration of financial data in the CKI takes place based upon Article 61C of GDPR based on legal obligations stipulated by the Dutch Financial Supervision Act. The Den Bosch judgment was especially interesting because it refuted an opinion from the Dutch State Protection and Supervisory Authority that for Article 61c to be invoked, the statutory provision stipulating the obligation to process personal data must elaborate details concerning the processing. Only in that way, the Dutch Supervisory Authority reasoned, could the law's provision be sufficiently clear and precise as required in Recital 41 of GDPR. The Supervisory Authority acknowledged that the Financial Supervision Act required from credit providers to process financial data with consumers that was necessary in order for credit providers to be able to obtain information on the consumer before entering into a credit arrangement or before allowing a significant increase in the credit limit. However, the Supervisory Authority concluded the statutory provisions failed to meet the requirements of clarity and precision because the provisions are silent on matters such as data retention periods and access to the data. The Den Bosch Court invoked a couple of scholarly works to arrive at a different conclusion, that GDPR does not require from the law setting out a legal obligation to specify details of the concomitant processing of personal data. So long as the data processing is an inseparable part of the broader legal obligation, Article 61c is applicable. The Arnhem Verladen Court of Appeal concluded that every processing of personal data, including processing based on Article 61c, must be in line with the principles of proportionality and subsidiarity. Paragraphs 4.8 and 4.9 of the judgment. 
considering that it was the Dutch Credit Registration Office itself and not the Financial Supervision Act to prescribe the five-year retention period of the petitioner's financial data in the CKI, the court looked into whether the duration was proportionate in relation to the purpose to be served for retention of the data. Also, the court had to be satisfied that the purpose could not reasonably be achieved another way. The court concluded that principles of proportionality and subsidiarity were observed in this case. Taking all of this into account, the Court of Appeal concluded that the erasure of financial data from the CTI before its buyer of the retention period would undermine the purpose of the registration. So, an interesting case there of when legal obligation trumps almost any other right under GDPR. We're always on the lookout for cases such as this to bring you useful insights into the application of GDPR, and we'll always look to bring them to you when we can in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. If you are a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you might just remember that back in episode 68, we mentioned about the EU plan to bring in rules about artificial intelligence, which would be basically modelled on the rules for GDPR in terms of enforcement and in terms of each state needing to create a regulatory body. This week, a leaked report would indicate that this legislation on artificial intelligence is soon to become before the European Commission. It's understood that the proposals will suggest banning the use of facial recognition for surveillance or algorithms manipulate human behaviour under EU regulations. All firms could face fines similar to those under GDPR, i.e. 4% of global turnover. The aim of the legislation is to meet concerns that have been raised about the increasing use of artificial intelligence. In December last year, the European Agency for Fundamental Rights, the FRA, published a report warning against the use of tech in medicine, targeted advertising and predictive polling as it could pose a threat to civil rights. The FRA report suggested that the EU should further clarify how data protection rules apply to artificial intelligence, as well as providing more clarity on the implications of automated decision-making and the right to human review when artificial intelligence is used. As part of its latest proposals, EU member states would be required to appoint assessment bodies to test, certify and inspect the systems. Firms that develop prohibited artificial intelligence services, supply the wrong information or fail to cooperate with authorities could be fined up to 4% of global revenue using the same fine basis as GDPR. It's understood that despite the new rules coming into place, there will be exceptions, including the use of artificial intelligence for safeguarding public security, as well as artificial intelligence systems that are used exclusively for military purposes. Once we have more news on this legislation and its progress through the European Commission, we will of course bring it to you in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To America now, and gay dating app Manhunt has confirmed that a hacker gained access to its accounts database earlier this year. Manhunt is understood to have 6 million members, has confirmed it was hit by a data breach in February in a notice filed with the Washington Attorney General's office. The breach is the latest in a long string of attacks on dating sites that are an attractive target for malicious users since they often hold some of the most sensitive information about their users. The company says the breach gave the hacker access to a database that stored account credentials for Manhunt users. The attacker capitalised on the access and downloaded usernames, email addresses and passwords, although Manhunt says it doesn't store any payment details. While the Manhunt noticed the knowledge that more than 7,700 Washington state residents were affected by the breach, the company didn't mention what percentage of its users had had their data stolen. However, an attorney representing the company said that the breach impacted 11% of Manhunt users. If we receive any further update on this from Manhunt, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. 
And finally this week, we travelled to New Zealand, where trans-Tasman catering and cleaning firm Spotless has admitted to a huge data breach in which hackers may have obtained past and present staff members' passport and IRD numbers, along with other personal information. Spotless said that it told affected workers by email on Thursday this week. One employer, Spotless, who did not want to be identified, said that she was deeply worried and had immediately visited her bank to change her credit cards. She was concerned her passport was compromised and also that Spotless's lower-wage cleaning staff, many of whom had English as a second language and perhaps poor access to email, would not necessarily receive the communication. In its email on Thursday, Spotless confirmed it had been subject to a ransomware attack where hackers infiltrate an IT system and then demand payment. Spotless said it immediately engaged cybersecurity experts to conduct a forensic investigation and that investigation had found that personal information may have been accessed. The email suggested that anyone who had worked for or contracted to Spotless or applied for a job there could be affected. The data could have included names, email addresses, phone numbers and residential addresses as well as passport details and tax numbers. Spotless said that it contacted government cyber security bodies in Australia and New Zealand, the Privacy Commissioner and the Australian Information Commissioner. Spotless also gave staff an information sheet entitled Steps You Can Take to Protect Against Data Misuse and offered a free phone hotline number available during business hours. A spokesman said, We would like to apologise for any concern or inconvenience the incident may have caused. Asked if the Spotless would compensate those left out of pocket and whether it felt an email was enough to reach all staff, Helene Tory, Spotless's General Manager of Reputation and Business Excellence, said, Rest assured that we have taken reasonable steps to notify all the affected individuals we have set up a call centre and email address that affect the individuals and contact us if they have any queries, details of which are in the notification. If we receive any further update on this, either from Spotless or from either the New Zealand or Australian authorities, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. <laughs> The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurer production. Until next time, bye-bye.